0: So it seems to be quite a lot of questions today. See how we go. Dear Ajahn, I am sitting meditation and a fly starts buzzing around me. I work on letting go of any ill will that arises. That's okay. Then it sits on my lip and moves up and down my lip, buzzing. It's now much more difficult to just sit without shooing it away. It feels almost instinctual and ill will begins to arise. How do I remain unperturbed with Upeka? Similarly, with strong pain, how in practice does one watch without identifying in the middle of the strong pain. Well, it, these two situations are slightly different. Right? It's not necessarily a disturbance to show away a fly, is it? You can do that peacefully. Um You're not trying to harm it or kill it. You just brush it away gently, with a bit of bit of air, and your hand move it, and the fly goes. And you can still wish it well, just uh, equal matter for yourself and the fly. You're protecting yourself from the germs of the fly, and the fly is still wishing that hopes it hopes it finds a nice bit of cow dung or something and go off. But, uh, you know, it's quite easy once you practice Dhamma, meditation more often. You know, you can sure away a fly. You can even sometimes just scratch an itch and go back to meditating. It doesn't have to be a problem. As far as the fly goes, I mean, it's, you know that's the way flies are there small creatures who depend on other creatures for their food. So they'll tend to fly around just according to their own instinct. And it, you know, Don't take it personally. It's not that the fly is out to get you. It's just a fly, and flies buzz around people, when they're near people. So you just say, oh, that's the way a fly is, no need to get upset with it. Or angry. Just know that's the way they are. The reflection with pain is similar in the sense that you know, you you have a human body sit on the ground for long periods of time, you'll get some pain. That's not unusual. Um, different kinds of pain is the pain of some physical condition, an illness or deterioration in your body or an injury and maybe that kind of pain you can't get rid of. It's there all the time, sort of in the background of your awareness. Then there's other pains that are more temporary so that might be just when you're sitting cross-legged on the floor after a while pain comes up. If you move that pain disappears. So if it's a pain that you can't get rid of to do with illness or problem in the body, then you have no choice but to start uh, getting used to it and being patient with it and developing a a good attitude towards it because it's something you can't get rid of. Um, So better to develop some metta, goodwill towards yourself, Experiencing this pain is a good starting point. Relax your state of mind, your anxiety about the pain. And then in the meditation, if you have such a pain, or in the case of these more temporary pains, to do with legs and backs and things, you can experiment making pain the object of your mindfulness. So you turn your attention to investigate the pain with mindfulness. Put your attention exactly where the pain is, the very thing you don't like, don't want, you put your attention there uh, to get to know it better. And through understanding it better, getting to know it better, often the aversion, the ill will to the pain will start to fade. But one has to go gently here because our pain threshold is only so much. Um, In the beginning of practice, we maybe can only turn our attention to be mindful of pain a little bit, just for a few moments, and then it's too much and we have to move, change posture to get rid of the pain. but as you keep practicing you may get better at it, keep gently, you know when pain comes up in your your body during the course of the meditation, learn to gently turn the attention to the pain, ask questions about it, see exactly where it is, where is this feeling arising, how intense is it? And sometimes you find it's not as intense or as unbearable as you thought. There's half the problem is what we think about the pain not the pain itself because when we don't have much mindfulness and wisdom we'll just like the question says we'll identify with the pain as me mine my pain and ill will will start to arise because it's an unpleasant experience but when you establish mindfulness little by little sending your attention there the pain becomes just an object of the mind. The mind knows the pain, but is not thinking about it, anxious about it, worried about it, averse to it. It's just knowing the pain as one feeling. And the more continuous your mindfulness, the better your mindfulness, the better you'll be able to do that. So you may find sometimes that you can just sit with a lot of pain but it doesn't bother the mind. You just know there is pain, that feeling there, but you let go of the ill will. Other times, sometimes if it's not a very intense pain, sometimes the pain just disappears altogether through the power of mindfulness applied to the pain, it actually starts to fade out. That's also possible. And one other method is of course, is to ignore pain. And that's also you can practice just keep with your meditation object the breath, buddho and you say to yourself well this pain I understand it's coming up but I'm just going to completely ignore it and stay with the breath and when you're doing that successfully maybe the pain just completely disappears as well you'll find when you're peaceful you can tolerate a lot of pain or you'll find that the pain completely Fades away from your awareness because you're focused on the breath or on butto. But especially in the beginning of practice, you have to take it easy because you don't want to discourage yourself. If you have a lot of pain, then experiment to find a more comfortable posture, yeah. so sit on a chair or sit in one position for as long as you can reasonably manage until you find it's just unbearable and then change posture, carry on meditating uh, in a new posture. Otherwise what we we do is we, we make ourselves miserable if you're always trying to be uh, with the pain and just, just push yourself to be with pain in painful postures. You know, after a while... You might associate meditation with pain and unpleasantness and then your mind just doesn't want to meditate because it always says, oh, when I meditate there's pain, I just have to be with this pain, so it starts to become something you don't really want to do, it's not pleasant, so take it gently, but you'll find the more peaceful you become, the more mindfulness is present, pain becomes less of an issue. Many people find when they have pain, the other sort of pain, say from illness or injury, it actually makes them quite mindful because they just can't escape it. So they, they have to learn how to be aware and mindful of it so that the mind isn't always in a state of suffering and anxiety or aversion. And I've even heard people say they're grateful for their pain because it kind of woke them up to practice mindfulness more and although they didn't... it's not a nice thing to have pain but it actually helped them to practice more and be more sincere in their practice. Question, how can we practice living in the present moment in the world where we work? socialize with family, friends work associates etc I can't see how we can be mindful in these situations Ajahn Chah always said the place of practice is your own body and mind and to see that's the important thing it's not being in the monastery, or being at home, or being at work. It's wherever your body and mind is, that's where your place of practice is. You can always be mindful of your body and mind in the present moment, wherever you are. So even if you're at work and it's very busy and stressful, you're at home where it's very, you're very busy and active. You're always with yourself, so you always have the opportunity to develop more mindfulness, bring, you, bring up mindfulness in whatever you're doing, whatever the posture, whatever the activity, whoever you're with. And partly it's an attitude thing. Partly we say, oh, I'm too busy to be mindful, so we don't try, we just forget it. <laughs> and it's just we've already defeated ourselves by saying, oh I'm too busy to be mindful or another common one is, I don't have the merit to practice mindfulness, Um, I have to do my busy job, look after the family, so again, I won't even bother. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes we're actually uh, deluding ourselves or making excuses and you might say it's laziness or you might say it's uh, we're just too finding excuses uh, not to practice. What we really have to do is turn around and say how can I practice mindfulness in this situation with these people uh, with this, in this place and work at it. You know, we have to be willing to put in the effort and if you are at work, well, your job of work, you can make your object for your mindfulness. So if you're typing, that's your where your mindfulness should be, with your fingers, the screen, the information that you're putting on there, spelling correctly and writing properly, with a, trying to get some information down on paper, that's, your, that's where your mindfulness can be at that time. Uh, somebody comes into the room and gives you another instruction or a bit of information, well, you might have to stop that one task. You concentrate on that person and the exchange of information, the communication. That's where your mindfulness is next. When that's finished, then you go back to your task. Maybe at the end of that task, you've got a few moments. You can even go to the breath or butto just to really deepen your mindfulness back to yourself, how you're feeling, what you're thinking at that time, then maybe on to the next task, or you go to lunch, or you go here and do this. Your life is uh, full of many activities and tasks, but you can make each thing you're doing the object of your mindfulness. If you're with kids, then that's your mindfulness object, your kids. So if it's, you know, it's in the morning, getting them ready for school or whatever, that's your object. What do they need? What do they need? What advice do they need? You know, remind them to be uh, hardworking, not to fight, not to play around in class, um, to do everything that the teacher tells them to be well-behaved. Give them the right instructions, give them their packed lunch, their bags, send them off You send them off yourself, drive the car well with mindfulness. When they come home, you check what do they need, what activities do they do, you take them, you help them with their uh, homework until it's time for bed. You consider what's an appropriate amount of play time, how many games to play, how much free time should they have. That's all mindfulness practice. Mindfulness of kids, having kids. If you've got a husband or a wife, you know, mindfulness of your relationship so you don't neglect that, you know, how to speak well with your partner, how to restrain your negative emotions so that they don't come out and ruin your relationship, how to be sensitive to your partner, you know, give them some time, some support, some help, see what they need, listen to them, give them good advice, Hopefully they do that with you. You, know, you you practice mindfulness in a relationship, well it works for you and then it also will bring good good results back from the other side as well. And part of mindfulness they say is knowing your duty in any situation at any time. <clears throat> so if you're a husband or a wife, you know your duty when you're relating to your partner is you know as a husband as a wife, your responsibility in the household, your responsibility in the marriage, your responsibility towards your kids, if you have them, you know you have to share your time together, you have to run the household together, earn money, sort out your finances. That's all part of mindfulness practice. Um, the more we become mindful of our responsibilities or our duties, well, the more benefit we'll gain, the better we'll be able to run our household, run our lives, uh, improve our relations with others. And you'll see, when we lose our mindfulness, we lose a sense of personal responsibility or awareness of our duty, problems come. Ajahn, is it possible that the tsunami in Japan earlier this year had something to do with Japan's persistent hunting of great whales the sea god king or dragons wouldn't be too happy seeing their beloved citizens slaughtered it's like a cross between a newspaper and a fairy tale isn't it uh and just the, the the idea of Japan. I mean, I can't remember how many million people live there. Maybe, say, a hundred million people. There's a lot of individuals there with their different stories, their different lives and karma, good and bad. It's not that every Japanese person goes whale hunting and kills whales. Yeah. a lot of them probably have nothing to do with whale hunting, never eat whale meat. So uh, when we talk about karma on this grand scale, sometimes it's a little bit, we can get caught into generalizations, I think. Japan, a lot of people, big area. Everyone has their own karma. So sure, there are some people who hunt whales, maybe Japanese people, and if they break the precept of killing, then they'll definitely make some karma there, some negative karma will come back. And the more they do it, the stronger their intention, the stronger the karmic result. Uh, As far as tsunami goes, well, it could be many, many different reasons why people were caught in the tsunami and then other people were not caught. Some people were killed, some were not. Some people's property was damaged, some was not. There'll be a whole variety of reasons there to do with each individual's personal karma and personal life story. It's almost too much to try and work it out, isn't it? You try and work out how could it happen to all those people at that time in that place. Probably the easiest thing is just to say, well, there must be some cause, some karma there. And people who lose their life, the Buddha always said, if somebody loses their life early, you know, they they die before they're old. It's often uh, the result of the past karma of killing. But whether it's killing whales or killing other animals or other people, Uh, We don't know. We don't have that ability to know. So we just have to accept, well, there's probably a cause somewhere. If somebody's died young in their past, could be long distant past or recent past, maybe there's some karma of killing previously has come back given its result and their life is shortened or they have injury. Uh, Loss of property, maybe they've, in a long distant past, have damaged others property of others, so that karma has come back to them and so on. Probably the most useful thing when we reflect on this is to uh, offer our sympathy, our empathy to the people who suffer. You know, the living, those who survived, to uh, like we do, we collect funds for them, we send people to help Help them uh, rebuild the country. Help them to sort out their problems. Even if we feel we can't do much ourselves, we, at the very least we can wish them well. Maybe wish them that they uh, recover from any injury and difficulty. That they don't wish uh, that they don't meet with any future tsunamis. And we can have that aspiration. And if we ever visit Japan or any Japanese people come to visit us, we can. Uh, show them our goodwill, help them in whatever way we can. We can share our merits with the deities that live. They say there's deities in the sea, in the, on the land. We can share our merits with them. The Buddha said when you share your merits with the deities, the deities tend to be sympathetic and try to look after you and protect you. So we can do that as we did just now, we chanted that chant. Thank you Ajahn. I also thank the venerable monks and Anagarikas, the organisers, the helpers and all the retreatants who support the retreat in different ways, especially by their good practice of keeping noble silence. As Ajahn has said before, keeping noble silence helps support the retreat. Is this also giving respect to the triple gem? Please kindly explain if noble silence is to be observed only during meditation times in and around noble meditation hall or throughout the day at lunch times, breakfast times, tea times and around toilet areas. Thank you again. And the Noble Silence practice is to help bring up mindfulness so that we can set aside all unnecessary business and, and the tendency of the mind to always be going out to communicate with others, talk about things and so on. So many meditators find it a very helpful practice in a situation where they come into a large group of people for a short period of time, a few days, to cut out the talking gives you the chance to turn your attention inwards practice mindfulness of body and so on one of the dangers though is that when we're trying to practice that we're no longer speaking ourselves but our eyes are still looking our ears are still hearing so instead of enjoying our own noble silence and getting carrying on with it we often judge others who aren't as silent as us. That's a very common reaction in the mind. We compare. And we might be strictly keeping noble silence, but we keep noticing those who are not and falling into ill will or states of uh, negativity. That's quite common. So you have to watch that and see that it's a personal practice. If you have the strength, the discipline, the motivation, then it can be very, very helpful for your meditation. It just cuts out a lot of extra um, distraction, uh, helps you conserve your energy, helps you to maintain mindfulness on your meditation object very well. Uh, But at the same time, if somebody around you is talking, maybe there's a need for them to talk. best thing is just to let them take responsibility for their practice and you get on with your practice. It's not something you can really impose on somebody, can you? You can't police them and say, you've got to be nobly silent, keep silent, keep silent. If they haven't learned to do that yet, then you have to just accept that. Everyone's at a different stage in their practice and some people are very silent and some people are not. You know, sometimes we get a fixed idea, we associate silence uh, If it's an Arahant, they're probably just silent all the time. noble silence. silence. You live with some of these teachers, like Ajahn Chah was talking a lot. (laughs) He's talking to the monks, talking to the lay people. But he could be very silent as well. There's a time and place for these things. And sometimes our ideal is not yet in line with reality. So it's a matter of time and place. And it's a, a skillful... Means It's like a tool in the practice that if you know how to use well, it can be very, very helpful. And that's why we encourage it. But some people are not yet ready for it, or they're not yet very consistent. They have noble silence sometimes. Uh, It's just the way it is, isn't it? The reason it's called noble is the idea is bringing up mindfulness brings up wholesome states of mind. So goodwill, patience, mindfulness, wisdom, these qualities ennoble your mind. They raise the level of your mind up. The more we practice that, the more hopefully we can experience that kind of result. In the West, mindfulness is taught without any discussion on the precept and other aspects of the path. Please comment your thoughts on taking just one aspect and not all aspects of the teachings of the Buddha. Well, I guess my my thoughts are I tend to be one of the sort of more optimists. I say, well better the one thing than nothing. So mindfulness Without the rest of the path, it's still better than nothing at all. But you probably see the, point, the problem is that Buddhism, it's, we call it the eightfold path. It has all these aspects, all these factors. And right mindfulness is at the center of it. So that's why we talk about it a lot and it's practiced and uh, encouraged a lot. But it's true, you can't separate mindfulness practice from the precept. You know, to be mindful, in the Buddhist sense, is to be aware of that which causes suffering. Your thoughts, your speech, your actions, whatevers causing you suffering, or the suffering of others, is not good, is it? Nobody wants to be unhappy, suffering, miserable. So you cannot separate the practice of mindfulness from right livelihood, Right action, right speech. You can't separate from right samadhi, right effort. You can't separate it from right view. It's all linked together. And this is probably one reason why there's people often get to a kind of point in their practice if they're just practicing mindfulness in a very kind of non religious way, you know, as a therapy technique or in a sort of a meditation retreat, but without any other teachings to help them explain them how mindfulness fits into the path often they reach a kind of a block where they they maybe improve in their sort of inner sense of peace and calm a little bit and they certainly gain something but they often are at a loss how to incorporate mindfulness into the whole picture of their daily life often they don't have the teaching in right view say you know where where are we heading with this mindfulness what are we supposed to be doing and the mindfulness we practice is it's a purification of the mind you're learning to relinquish and abandon negative states of mind negative speech negative actions that cause suffering and the idea is eventually you actually purify your mind uh, bring your mind to the point where it's free from greed, anger and delusion. Mindfulness also is practice with wisdom, so not just practicing mindfulness, we're developing wisdom and insight at the same time, and that helps us, again, to purify the mind. If you just isolate mindfulness as just a sort of a, a simple technique for bringing the mind to the present moment, and you don't explain how wisdom fit, is developed and you don't understand, don't explain how precepts support mindfulness and so on, so some of the things I've been talking about, uh, then it's very easy for the person to get misunderstanding, wrong views about the practice, uh, not know where they're going. It's like giving someone half a map. You tell them go to Warburton from Melbourne, but you only give them half the map. You know, they might not get to where they want to go to. So the more we can explain how mindfulness fits into the path, the better, I think. Why does Ajahn Chah open his eyes in his statue? Because that's how the artist did it. We didn't ask for an Ajahn Chah with closed eyes, so he didn't do one. Uh, it's based on the model of the image that was used uh, at another monastery. And uh, they already had the image there, so just took that image and uh, made a, a second statue. Very difficult to do... Statue. that statue was made after Ajahn Chah died, so they can only work from photographs. And the artist who makes the uh, wax model first before you pour it in bronze had never met Ajahn Chah. So we spent a lot, lot of time kind of changing things and saying, do this, do that, broaden this and shorten that and whatever. Um, but, you know, you're just working from memory and from photographs. Uh, so it's never a perfect thing. The real purpose of the statue is you know, to represent Ajahn Chah, and you recollect the qualities of Ajahn Chah, Sati. You recollect the qualities of one who has practiced well, practiced directly, practiced with integrity, with insight. One who has realized, developed the path and realized the fruit. And so it's a symbol or it's an aid for us to recollect the qualities that we ourselves aspire to and try to develop in our practice, just as a Buddha statue is. Obviously the statue, the artistic form helps. So people have different um, preferences with the artistic form, but they are just preferences according to our character. We want to go deeper and use it as a way just to remember the qualities that the Buddha was teaching, Ajahn Chah was teaching. It's also been blessed, all the statues have been blessed and the teachers always say bronze and metal is a very good material medium for receiving the blessings of monks. When they chant and spread matter in their meditation to a statue, metal absorbs the the power, the energy very well. So some people come and they you know, they look at the statue and they often feel very peaceful just looking at the statue and sometimes that's because of the peaceful energy already absorbed into the statue. Some people have seen the statues just as like ball of light. The whole the image of the statue has disappeared and just looking the mind has a lot of faith and they're peaceful, and the statue just turns into a ball of light, I mean golden light. No more Ajahn Chah, just light. And that's, you know, it's just, again, it's just their mind picking up on the peaceful energy of that statue. The white statue here's a, a Burmese Buddha statue. It's a statue of the Buddha sitting with hand touching the ground, night of his enlightenment. Uh, inviting the earth to be his witness that he's not going to get up and move until he's purified his mind and reached the end of suffering. It was given to us by a well-known meditation master, Lumpo Opat, who lives in northern Thailand. He's very kind. Uh, Last year went to visit him and invited him to come here to bless the temple and teach us some Dhamma. But he's very old, so he said, I can't come this year, take this, and gave the statue instead. <laughs> he blessed the statue. Ajahn, how long are you going to stay at this monastery? You have to move to another place or not? Mm, as Ajahn Chah would say, everything is uncertain, <laughs> <laughs> not sure. Would you like to go back to Thailand? Yes, I'm going next week. (laughs) I go to Thailand all the time. Luckily, uh, people are kind enough to help us with travel expenses and there's always reasons to go to Thailand, to meet with teachers, uh, fellow monks, very occasionally to do other things for blessing ceremonies or visits somebody or teach but usually it's to visit teachers that I've lived with and I know take the other monks sometimes to visit, receive teachings um, keep in contact with the wider monk community, the Sangha Uh, it's it's like a home because I lived there 18 years so I lived in England 21 years Thailand 18 years here now it's all getting up to 11 years so i lived a large part of my life in Thailand, so it's like a second home, or a first home, second home, third home. Um, So it's nice to go back, I have many friends there. But I also have a responsibility here, because I uh, took on that responsibility coming to live here, to stay in this monastery, so I'm not planning to go anywhere at the moment but everything is uncertain, so I cannot guarantee hard to read the writing, says something like, actually I want to be a loving person, but I can't do that. I can't show my love to all human beings. Please pray for me to become a good human being. Well, I certainly wish that you become a good human being. I think if you've written this and you're here, you already are uh, quite a good human being already. Perhaps you don't realize it. Often we're very idealistic and judgmental on ourselves. We meditate and we see all our faults and we often feel disappointed about life. We haven't done as much as we'd like and got as as far as we'd like. And we just see the faults and so we become very hard on ourselves. So try to gain a balanced view of yourself. And the Buddha said, when you practice metta meditation, You're balancing your view up because you're becoming more accepting of the way you are. Just seeing yourself as one human being who uh, we all have to go through the challenges of life. Aging, sickness, death, living in the world with other people. We deserve goodwill just as other people deserve goodwill. We all want to be happy. And When you're meditating, you're developing that attitude and that feeling towards yourself first whatever however you are you're good you're bad you're the best you're the worst doesn't matter you're just developing a goodwill towards yourself first one human being and from that point you start spreading out to others and you're concentrating on the fact that we're all human beings we all want to be happy we all do not wish to have suffering or pain in our lives. We all want to be free from suffering. And you're generating that thought, that aspiration for yourself and then for others. May we all be free from suffering. And this is a kind of, it's like, a, it's like a cooling energy that comes into your heart little by little as you practice. And obviously that it'll reach points where it's obstructed so you have a little bit of negativity towards this person a memory, some bad experience, maybe you think of them and you get a physical pain or at least a mental kind of negative thought so your meta flows to that point and then it stops reaches a block so your, pr- your practice is how to gently push through the block soothe it and then push through so that you no longer have a block there that can be to the people in the past just our memory of them it can be people we are constantly meeting and stir up anger in us uh, you just have to keep working at it little by little practicing spreading meta, and it will come out in your speech your actions you know, of course it doesn't always come easily or naturally we have to practice We have to work at it and uh, just have to keep reminding ourselves to let go of all the negativity, uh, to forgive, and to consciously spread thoughts of kindness to others. You know, really do that as a regular practice until it becomes much more natural, much easier for the mind. The ones who make us angry there are teachers, so they're helping us helping us to purify our mind helping us to be wiser, more mindful I always remember Lumpur Put his one friend of Ajahn Chah enlightened master he said when he was a young monk he had lots of anger he thought how can I get rid of this anger originally he thought I'm just going to hang around with the people I like we always think like that but then he realised he still had anger even though he wasn't meeting the people he didn't like, he, uh, he could see he still had anger for them if he ever did meet them, or well, straight away the anger is there, the ill will is there. So well, this isn't the right way. So he changed it all around. He said, I'm only going to hang around with the people I don't like. And the people I like, I'll just ignore them. And he's a very disciplined, determined monk. So he did that very successfully. He spent all his time mixing and talking with and working with and, and spending time with the monks he didn't like and he said it very hard at first but over time he just kept working on developing metta accepting them the way they are and he said in every single person who he didn't like who he spent time with consciously went out of his way to spend time with them get to know them by getting to know them he found he could find something good in all of them and then the anger started to disappear. And he did it so well it got to the point where all his friends, his original friends started complaining he said you never talk to us, you never meet us, you never spend any time with us. because He just cut them off for a while but it was his own practice for a purpose, he wasn't doing it out of ill will, he just said friends I don't need to spend time with my friends, I need to spend time with my enemies. And he did that. And they, they say he's an Arahant. He was an Arahant, so completely freed his mind from anger. Why are some famous monks like Man? why did they have psychic power? What had they perfected in their practice? They had perfected what we call Abhinyar, the six Abhinyar. Develop samadhi, develop their sila, their samadhi, their panya to the point where usually we say perfected the samadhi to the level of fourth jhana. Based on fourth jhana, one can develop abhinya the ability to know uh, the minds of others, to see the future, to see beings in other realms, and so on. How much psychic powers? these practitioners develop depends on their past karma how many lives they've been practicing for how long what kind of practices they've done in the past will come through when they gain their samadhi then as they gain samadhi a lot of the psychic ability comes and just depends on their character and their past parami Um, but it's a subject monks often don't talk very much about because they have limits from their Vinaya, what they can say to laity, to non-ordained people. So it's also a subject where people like to speculate about because they don't have the information because nobody's saying. So we we often say, I'm sure he can read my mind, but we don't know. (laughs) Um, But sometimes people have their own experiences now, there's many, you can read the biographies and the books where some of those experiences are related. Stories about their great psychic powers. But the Buddha always reminded us, you know, psychic powers are not the aim of the practice. They're, really they're a teaching tool for an arahant who's already purified his mind, let go of greed, anger, delusion... And he's teaching people out of compassion and the psychic ability helps him to teach because he can see people's minds or he knows their character, knows their kilesa, what they need to hear in a Dhamma talk, what practices they should do that would be beneficial for them. And just like the Buddha, he can see what they need and he can think of, use his ability, his psychic ability to help teach them, point out things that they can't see for themselves, maybe. But they're not a goal in themselves. You know, some Arahants don't have psychic powers or have very limited psychic powers. They come generally with those who have practiced over many, many lifetimes of meditation. Meditation. the Buddha also pointed out they can be a great source of attachment. So if one develops psychic powers but without the area path, without sila, samadhi, panya, (coughs) or without sila and panya, just develops the samadhi and the psychic power, it can become a great attachment, can make one very proud, lost in one's own self-importance, because there might still be a strong sense of self, or one could use psychic powers even for greedy purposes and to make a name for oneself, a reputation, to impress people so they give one offerings, or make a fuss over one. Or even possible to use psychic powers to get at your enemies. <laughs> Somehow, you know, see if you develop the fire casino you set your enemy on fire or something like that. That would be someone without sila and without wisdom, they'd do that. So psychic powers alone are not the path and they're not the aim of the path. They're more like uh, some of the abilities that come out of compassion over practicing for many lifetimes, developing the subtleties of the mind. That particular practitioner will develop psychic powers and they can use them to help teach and help people. And you'll see how it affects people. Like If if you meet a teacher who can read your mind, say, they know what you're thinking, they know about you more than you do, (laughs) makes you very mindful, very careful. Suddenly, oh, better be careful what I think. Better give you one psychic power story because you're probably waiting for that. So, one time, we, many, many years ago, we went to Chiang Mai, a group of monks and lay people going in a bus, visiting different teachers, um, many of them who reputed to have psychic powers. And we were driving towards the monastery of Lumpoplian, who you've all got his thread now, so got thread from a monk with great psychic powers and before we reached the monastery the people were talking about the plan for the next day because we were traveling on and they're saying where are we going to get the meal for the monks? Where are we going to stop? we have got to buy food. Are we going to stop in the market and buy food? Are we going to go to a restaurant? Are we going to find somewhere where we can cook our own food? And they're arguing and arguing and then they saying, and some of the monks are vegetarian, we should get some vegetarian food. And someone said, well, we've got to have a bit of meat, otherwise the monks who eat meat won't be happy. And they started arguing, vegetarian, meat, cook it, buy it, restaurant, big argument. And The monks are sitting there sort of just patiently not getting involved at all. And there's this big argument going on in the back of the bus about food and uh, got into the monastery and everyone went to see Lumpur and bowed, paid respects, sat very respectfully, quietly, Lumpur and just started giving a Dhamma talk and he just said, food is just food, it's just a medicine for the body, it doesn't matter where you get it, it doesn't matter where, vegetarian, it's not something to argue about, You, you really shouldn't ruin your relations with other people arguing over something so petty as food. He just went on and on and on, haranguing everyone who had been arguing about food. And everyone's going, oh, he knew what happened, oh. So once he started the tour like that, everyone kind of falls into place. They all become very shy and, oh, he knows what we've been doing, okay. And then they, they start concentrating better because they set aside all their distractions and all their concerns in their mind they become very focused on his talks and then he talks in real dhamma about developing sila, samadhi, panya, the path of practice and everyone's very very concentrated. When they left the monastery they said oh Lumpur has taken away all our suffering, our mind is so pure now. Oh. They're all very happy. So you, can, you know that's how um, a teacher can use psychic power sometimes. He just knows things Point something out maybe you weren't mindful of didn't realize just one example and when you did the long night sitting session at Wat Nana chat, where you and other monks allowed to change your body posture when pain arose yes you're allowed to can our body handle all night long sittings without changing body posture at all it can but you have to be very very determined and be willing to go through the pain barrier because you sit for just an hour or two you'll start to get an intense pain come up maybe three hours maximum, then the pain will really start burning you. Um, Anja Mahabur talked about five pain barriers because he was somebody who practiced a lot, sitting in one posture without moving and just contemplating pain, the dukkha weight the way it comes up, and all the sensations, going to the point where the whole body is on fire because you're not moving. You're just sitting there with... It, with this one posture, then all the fire disperses back to peace, one-pointedness, Then a little later the whole fire comes up again, five pain barriers gone through in one night. Ajahn Chah didn't talk quite so technically, but he could sit all night, he could sit all day and all night and all day the next day if he needed to. They obviously knew how to contemplate pain and let go of it, just see it as not-self and let go of it. And most of these great teachers, that's what they've done. They've learned to see pain as pain. It's not mine, not me, not myself. Constantly practicing, reflecting on pain, sometimes pushing to great limits. But also knowing the right amount you're not just sitting with pain for no purpose at all or just becoming miserable but uh, gently and at the right time pushing themselves as the mindfulness and the samadhi comes up to uh, accept more pain and contemplate it. What did Ajahn Chah say to the monks so one can sit longer and longer? I always said, be patient, otan, otan. Because we can always do a little bit more than we think. The thinking mind will always say, oh, enough. It's late already, let's stop. Tomorrow I've got a busy day, let's stop. Uh, The thinking mind will say, too painful, or maybe I'll do my knees in, or I'll get ill, or get some problem, better stop. The thinking mind has excuses and reasons to stop. And, you know, occasionally that's correct to follow that, but much of the time you don't need to follow that. You have to learn to set that aside and just keep practicing patience, seeing if I, if I can sit for an hour, well, can I sit for an hour and a half without moving? If I can sit for an hour and a half, can I sit for two hours? And learn through your experience. Just see what you can do to improve and you, you'll find that helps your practice. Mindfulness improves, a sense of peace comes up, and your wisdom, your ability to investigate things improves, but everyone's different, so you can't just compare with yourself with others, you have to know for yourself your limits and what you can do to improve and many people do the all night sit you know they say they get to the point where the mind is saying, I just can't go on anymore this is I've just reached breaking point. And then, you know, they thought, okay, five minutes more, and they go five minutes more. And, hmm. I could do five minutes. I reached the point where I said, oh, breaking point, no more, not a minute longer. And then they just push themselves five minutes long. Oh, what happened? I can do it. Where did all that thinking and all the worrying and all the, the rage go? You know, it's just a mood that comes out and goes away again. You can go through many breaking points in one evening, can't you? You reach the point, this is the end, I can't meditate another minute. It's just a thought, and then it goes, okay, another minute. <laughs> you can teach yourself like that. Yeah. Especially if you have a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, thai. ตัวตายก่อนที่มีมีปัญหาๆเราควรจะพิจารณาอย่าง question about um, preparing for death um, maybe i'll answer in thai first and give some explanation in english ก็ต่อแจกที่ <laughs> อปิจฉาบลอยวางเหมือนคนจะตายคนจะตายก็ <Santhropic> ในทุกอย่างที่ปกติเรายึดถืออยู่นั่ง Seeing day, yin, you, but may yut it, yag, k'an. Tua, rū, gặp, sīng, tī, rū, gai, gặp, jai, yag, k'an. Jep, pūrt, rū, yu, ami, vētana, jai, rū, yu, te mai yut it, yu, tong nhan. Jai, rū, yu, te prung tēng, mai srāng quram rūsak tautan, nai aakarni, tī jep, pūrt. Ani, tai, g'on, tai. Fyuk, yu, 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 นั่งสมาธิปล่อยวางในขันธ์ 5 ของตนทั้ง boy boy ถึงเวลาถึงคราวจะป่วยหรือแม่ใกล้ใกล้สมองเส้นเลือดในๆฝึกตั้งๆจิตก็ๆจนหรือๆคุณธรรมคุณงามความดีที่เราเคยการรักษาสติแข่งอยู่ที่พุทโธๆคืออะไรถ้าเราตายก่อนตายก่อนตายฝึกปล่อยวางในอารมณ์ทั้ง Just talking a little bit about uh, a phrase Ajahn Chah talked about, he said, practice dying before you die so people would come to his monastery to ordain or practice sometimes and he'd just say are you ready to die and they uh, oh <laughs> uh, he was very direct, very down to earth practical teacher and just pointing out that you know, the you, qualities you're developing in practicing Dhamma are letting go of your attachments to the world. So it's like dying. You're dying from your attachments though. You're not dying from anything good. You're dying from the, the attachments which causes suffering. What would he say? Yang may die go hai man may di go die. Uh, if, we're, if we still haven't died yet, then make it good. Whatever's no good, let that die. You, whatever's no good in your mind, let it die. Let go of it. Give it up. Abandon it. Your greed, your anger, your delusion. You can let that all die. Let it go. What's good, or what's left, you make good. You, know, you use your mind. Make your mind good. You purify it through the practice of mindfulness and insight. So we practice the Dhamma, we're practicing dying before we die. We practice meditation, mindfulness of painful feelings, very good practice for the end of your life. You don't know how you'll die, but for sure there'll be some discomfort and could be for a long period, could be mm-hmm. ill in bed, in a hospital or at home. How are you gonna deal with that? Well, the Dhamma that you practice through your life will support you, won't it? The mindfulness you practice, the um, precepts you've kept, the insight you've developed, the teachings you've heard, contemplated, and then the insight you've developed, you can use at that time to deal with painful feelings, discomfort, and any kind of suffering that might arise associated with aging, sickness, and death at the end of your life and the more you practice now while you're healthy well the more you're preparing for that moment for that time and that's what when you know the Buddha described when someone dies mind and body separate the body is something you have to leave behind there's nothing you can do about that but the mind is supported by its karma so good karma that you've developed through your life that supports the mind into its next life or ideally to nirvana (laughs) <laughs> if we practiced enough then the good karma we've made will be firm enough, strong enough to look after the mind right through death that's all we can do isn't it? all we can do is practice the best we can and then trust in the, in the goodness of our practice the Buddha said if you're afraid at the moment of death if nothing else, think of the Buddha you think of the Buddha brings up joy, faith makes you mindful, concentrated. If you can't think of the Buddha, maybe think of your teacher. If you have a, a living teacher, think of the teacher. And just put your mind in a wholesome state. So I know a few people who, monks who say face death and they didn't die in the end, but they thought they were going to die. They either went to their meditation object, and Buddha, 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 or the breath, the mind gathers together and they just hold on to that. Uh, or think of the Buddha. They didn't die, but they said, oh, when you think of the Buddha or think of the meditation object, the mind gathers together and the sense of detachment from the body is very clear. So there's, there's a sense of, well, the body is very ill or in pain, but the mind is not affected by that. And that's the result of practice practicing, you can experience these things. Ajahn, please tell us about dreams. What is a dream? Can we be mindful in a dream? Can we practice metta in a dream? Well, The Buddha said dreams occur for a number of different reasons. A very common one is just mental proliferation. We think a lot in our day when we're falling asleep. We go into the state half-sleep, half-awake and dreams just come up random thoughts thought processes and so on however there's also dreams that come about because we meditate and our mind is more peaceful and we've got mindfulness and insight when you're falling asleep sometimes that brings up a dream which is like a, a meaningful uh, reflection coming from the mind it could be teaching you something about your life something that's good or pointing out something is wrong or bad could be showing you something that's about to happen in the future Um, sometimes these are dreams prompted from outside from they say from devas or teachers usually it's prompted from your own good karma from your practice coming up teaching you something and we can be mindful in a dream you can you know have that experience where you wake up in the dream Maybe you're about to do something bad in your dream, but your mind says, no, don't do that. In a dream, you can have that experience. Um, or you can see how shameless your mind is. You're, you're doing something, and your mind says you shouldn't do that, and you carry on doing, like a naughty boy or a naughty girl. <laughs> yeah. Can you have meta in a dream? Yes, you can. You can... Uh, Maybe you have a dream where you dream of somebody you don't like or you're in a situation of conflict and you have a choice and you can either fight them or argue with them or you can practice metta and just let go. Uh, You can see someone in a dream who's suffering and feel sorry for them. You can see somebody who's practicing Dhamma and feel great joy seeing that person practicing Dhamma. There's many different experiences we can have in a dream. Uh, so if it 's a very vivid dream that you remember, maybe it 's teaching you something, and if you remember it, you can maybe contemplate it i like I have a friend who was um, a monk in uh, England. I remember he when we were young monks he had a a good dream he was a young monk he had problems waking up at. 3 a.m. with the morning bell and coming to the morning meditation. He liked to sleep in, snooze, but he felt this is not good. And he wanted to overcome this attachment, this this kilesa. So he kept making this aspiration, I've got to be less lazy, I've got to get up in the morning, come to the meeting on time. Trying and trying, trying, always trying to get up the energy to wake up and get up on time but he hadn't succeeded and then one day he said that this is it no more and he went to the statue of Ajahn Chah and he bowed in front of him he made this solemn vow he said may Ajahn Chah be my witness I'm going to learn to get up in the morning I'm going to do it if nothing else in this life I'm going to learn to get up in the morning come to the morning meeting then he went to back to his hut, and he went to sleep that night. And he said, as he fell asleep, he had this very vivid dream of Ajahn Chah coming. And Ajahn Chah, really bright, radiant. He was so happy seeing Ajahn Chah. And Ajahn Chah picked up a book. The book, I think it was book it was um, Still Forest Pool, a book some of you may have read. Ajahn Chah pointed. To, he said, this page. So in the morning, when he got up, he went and got that book and he opened the page that Ajahn Chah pointed to. And it was a, nothing spectacular. It's just a description Ajahn Chah teaching people how they practice at his monastery, Wat Bupong. It says, At Wat Bupong we have a wake up bell at 3 a.m. and everyone has to come to morning meditation. And he read that and he said, Oh, something just went into his mind when he read that, having thought of Ajahn Chah, having read that. He said, "After that, he never was late for a morning meditation again. Just clicked. That was that was the end of that problem." Dear Ajahn, I meditate around three a.m. morning time, <laughs> uh, focusing on my nose tip for in and out of breath. It takes around thirty to sixty percent of meditation and i will go back to sleep 30 to 60 minutes of meditation and then i'll go back to sleep but i feel tired when i wake up there is a feeling of lack of sleep is it normal for beginners to feel so please advise yes it's normal to uh, feel sleepy and tired in morning meditations when you get up earlier than you're used to It's normal, so it's something to practice with. On this retreat, we get up maybe a a lot earlier than you used to, but when you go back home after the retreat, see if you can at least get up a little bit earlier than you used to and practice meditating before you do anything else in the morning. That would be my advice. My recommendation is to keep practicing early in the morning, as early as you are comfortable with, yeah. If you get up at 7 usually, we'll try getting up at 6.30. If you get up at 6.30, you get up at 6, whatever. And you'll find through the practice over time, gradually the feeling of sleepiness and tiredness will get less uh, unless you're ill or particularly exhausted. So we have to practice with a lot of patience, endurance. Don't worry, if you're feeling sleepy, just keep working with it, keep going and you'll, you'll get through it. And when you do get through it, sometimes your mind will be so bright and you'll be so happy, you'll see the value of all that practice you've done. Dear Ajahn, is it possible to contemplate the body whilst asleep? (laughs) I can't do much contemplation while asleep. Sleep is time for rest. You let the mind just sleep, just go to sleep until it wakes up. Then you start establishing mindfulness with Buddha, with the breath. Then you can start contemplating. I used to dream I was watching my lifeless body from the above room, above the room. Uh, thank you for inviting us all here for the retreat. <laughs> when you dream, it's a state which we wouldn't say is asleep. It's in between awake and asleep. Say deep sleep or being asleep, you don't think, your mind just goes into bawanga and doesn't know anything. When you dream, it's this in-between state. So you're just slipping in, going into sleepiness, maybe falling asleep at night, waking up in the morning. Or even in a meditation, you could just fall asleep and have a dream and then wake up again. So you're not fully asleep, that's why you can dream. You can still have an image or a thought, feeling. And it's quite common people do have these dreams where their mind seems to come out of the body and they're looking at their body, uh, out of body experience. They can have it in an operating theatre, having surgery, be at home when they're uh, falling asleep and so on. And it's just, just the, the mind showing you its, its separation from the body, that it can separate from the body. That's possible. If it happens, don't worry about it. The thing to do is always think of the Buddha or think of your meditation object. If you wake up or are aware during an experience like that, just go to Bhutto, Bhutto, and bring you right back to the body and back to wakefulness. What you have to be careful of is that wish for such strange experiences to happen. You know, when am I going to have an out-of-body experience? what's going to happen, what might I see, what might I find as I do it. You know, that kind of curiosity can be a little bit dangerous and not very valuable. So always a practice mindfulness, bring your mindfulness back to your present moment, to the body, to the mind, in the present moment with Buddha, if you find you're having such, a, such an out-of-body experience or a dream and such. Oh, a lot of questions. Finish. Can uh, finish here and carry on practicing.